And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who's at the Father's side, he has made him known. Thank you, Sharon, so much. Stories told of two little fish swimming along in the ocean one day when a bigger, older, wiser fish swam by and said, Morning, boys. How's the water? The two younger fish look at each other, startled, and they say to each other, What is water? What is water? I heard that story told by a philosopher, and I think he was getting at, I could be wrong, I think he was getting at, do we know and are we aware of what is ultimately going on around us? These two little fish swimming by did not know what was ultimately out there, you might say. Do we? Do we this Christmas? Do we know what is ultimate reality, what is ultimately out there, who or what that may be? You really have only two options, if you think about it, two basic options. Ultimate reality is either a blob of some kind, an impersonal, maybe amorphous blob, maybe a gas. Or, ultimate reality is a person. When you boil it down, what is ultimate, you only have two options. Either, either blob or person. So how would you answer if someone asked you, how's the water? I don't know if I'm doing that or not, but sorry about that. How's the water? What would you say? Would you say, well, it's just been a blob of gas molecules always there, and these gas molecules collided, and boom, here we are. Or, or does anything in the beauty of this world, anything in the intricacy of the human body, anything in your own personhood, your own consciousness, say to you, ultimate reality is a person. Christmas asks us, how's the water? And forces us to an answer. Forces us to think about the right answer. Because it's a critical question. Christmas, in fact, in John's Gospel, provides an answer that I would sum up like this. That God's glorious Son became one of us to reveal the God of glory to us. If you asked, how's the water? Here's the answer from John's gospel. God's glorious son became one of us to reveal, to, to make known the God of glory to us. Now, I know that's a mouthful, so let's break it down into two parts. Here's the first part. God's glorious son became one of us. See, our passage begins with something or someone called 
the word, if you notice that when Sharon read. So let's back up and see what John is really talking about. The book begins in verse 1 with this verse. Verse 1, in the beginning. In the beginning was this word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So John, at the beginning of this prologue, goes back to the beginning before there was a beginning. He goes back to a time before there was time. He says, in the very beginning, you might say, in the ultimate reality time, before there was time, before there was anything else, there was this word, this eternal word. No beginning and no ending. He just always was. Always with God and always was God. And if that seems confusing, you have good company. (laughs) And it becomes clearer when we get down to our passage, what John is talking about, in verse 14. Because now in verse 14, he clarifies. Verse 14, and the word, and the word became flesh. There's no confusion there in that phrase, the word became flesh. That's Christmas. That's Bethlehem. That's the baby in the manger surrounded by farm animals. That's angels startling shepherds out in the field, crying out glory to God in the highest. That's the eternal word. Always with God, always was God who became flesh. The divine one took on a human nature to be fully God and fully man. We call it the incarnation. It just means the enfleshment of God. Two persons, two two natures rather, two natures in one person, Jesus Christ. It's like the reality TV show Undercover Boss. Anyone seen Undercover Boss before? How many, how many have seen Undercover Boss? Quite a few. You can go to YouTube later on and, and see an episode of Undercover Boss. There's lots of them out there. In this reality TV show, senior executives of a company, they go to work undercover in their company to see kind of what's really going on. So you have the CEO or the president working alongside his or her employees unbeknownst to them making pizzas, or taking out trash, or cleaning out porta-potties. Well, Christmas is like the ultimate episode of Undercover Boss, the creator. Almost, as it were, goes undercover in his creation. The divine word becomes flesh. And John says, if you can just leave that verse up for me, John says here next, He dwelt among us. Literally, he pitched his tent. He pitched his tent, which is kind of a loaded phrase, because the ancient Israelites had a a tent of meeting, a tent of meeting with God, later a tabernacle, the place of God's immediate presence. God is spirit. He is everywhere, equally present. You can't contain him in a tent. But in this tent, in this tabernacle, and later a, a temple... God made known his immediate presence among his people. And when he did so initially, he did it with intense glory, intense majesty. So so much so, the priests could not go in. 
Imagine a marine layer rolls off the ocean and it's so thick you can't penetrate it. A, a, a fog so thick you can't walk into it. It was God's glory like that concentrated in this tent. And so notice what happens here. The word became flesh, pitched his tent among us, and John says, and we have seen his glory. He's thinking back to the intense glory of that tent of worship. And now he says, of this one who became flesh, we've, we've beheld his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. Glory of God's unique Son. Glory of God's one-of-a-kind Son. See, there's a little more going on here that that John has in mind. He also seems to have in mind, as he says, we've seen his glory. He has in mind Moses in a famous scene when he says to God, please show me your glory. Moses was, I don't know, he's feeling good that day. Feeling tight with God. He said, I'm going to go for it. God, would you please show me, show me your glory. And God says to him, I'm going to proclaim it to you, and we'll come back to that next week, all right? Come back next week. But then God says, look, Moses, thank you, but you can't see me fully and live, okay? My glory would extinguish you. That's like taking an ice cube to the surface of the sun. You can't handle what you're asking for. I'll tell you what, I'm going to put you in the cleft of a rock. You'll be kind of sheltered there. I'll pass by and you'll see kind of my afterglow, you might say. It's kind of like when you look up in the sky and you see a jet high, high up in the sky. You really can't see the jet, but you can see the contrail behind it. It's almost like that, maybe a poor analogy. God says, you, you, you'll get to see some of my contrail, some of my afterglow. That's all you can handle. As Moses said, show me your glory. And God said, you can't handle it. Now with Christmas, now with Christmas, the word pitched his tent. And John says, and we've seen his glory. What Moses longed to see, we saw. In other words, with Christmas, God's glorious Son, God's glorious Son has become one of us. I want to ask with you, though, why? You should be wondering at this point, why? Well, secondly, to reveal. To reveal the God of glory to us. God's glorious Son became one of us, took on flesh to reveal, to make known the God of glory to us. In other words, Christmas in John's gospel is, it's really about revelation. That's maybe the central theme in this prologue, revelation. God making himself known. Now, certainly God, certainly God makes himself known in creation. Uh, in a beautiful sunset, when you're at sunset cliffs and you see a gorgeous sunset, you're seeing something of God's glory. Or you look up in the night sky, maybe out in the desert, and you see star upon star and the Milky Way going over your head. And you see something of God's glory and majesty and power. But there are two problems with that kind of revelation. Two problems as far as we're concerned. Problem number one 
We, we suppress that revelation left to ourselves. We, we push it down in our psyche. We don't want anything really to do with it. And problem number two, it can't fix problem number one. So left to ourselves, we can't truly know this God, but Christmas is about God coming to us that we might know him. As verse 18 tells us, verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, that glorious Son. He has made him known. Now John writes here, no one has ever seen God because that's, that's the expectation throughout the Bible. You don't fully see God in all of his glory and, and live. Sometimes people saw glimpses, a, a partial eclipse, you might say. Like Moses, he saw kind of God's afterglow. But if you really saw him, you died. And that, that was the expectation throughout the Bible. The prophet Isaiah I'm so sorry. I don't know what I'm doing to, uh, to distinguish that, uh, to make that sound, but I'll do my best to keep it going. <laughs> yeah, everything's tightened up as far as I can tell. The prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, he has a vision of, of the Lord, and he sees, he sees the hem of his robe. In our Bible, sometimes it says the train of his robe. It's really, it's really just the hem. Just the hem of his robe. And he he sees these angelic creatures crying out, Holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah comes unglued. He comes undone. He starts to fall apart. Because he knows he's sinful. And God is holy. He sees a glimpse of his holiness. And he thinks he's going to die. That's, That's what John has in mind when he says, No one. Look, guys, no one has ever seen God, not in the fullness of his glory, but the only God who is at the Father's side, that glorious Son, he has made him known. Literally, you might say, he narrated the Father. He he gave a narration of the Father. The glorious Son narrates the God of glory to us. The, the Christian writer and, and, and uh, Oxford and Cambridge professor C.S. Lewis, he once commented that a person, a person cannot know God, left to themselves, any more than the character Hamlet could know Shakespeare, unless Shakespeare writes himself into the play. That's what's happening in verse 18. The creator is writing himself into the creation. The glorious son narrates the father. So the one, track me, the one, the one, the one in closest relationship with the father from all eternity past, from that beginning before there was a beginning. God's one-of-a-kind son. He narrates the Father. He explains the Father. He displays the Father as nothing else and no one else can. I could, I could describe my lovely wife to you. If you'd never met her, I could describe her to you. But if I didn't know her, my narration would not be very helpful to you. Probably would not be very accurate for you. 
but I've known her now. I've been married to her for over 21 years. I've been in the closest relationship possible with her for 21 years. I've lived with her for 21 years. So my narration would be very accurate, I do believe, and, and flattering. <laughs> That's what John is driving at. The one who would know the Father best. The one who has been with him, dwelling with him from eternity past. God's own glorious Son narrates him to you. In other words, to put it plainly, Jesus Christ is the clearest revelation of God you can find anywhere else. John chapter 14, I think, somewhat humorously captures this. In John chapter 14, Jesus has announced to his disciples that he's, he's returning to the Father. He's going to heaven. He's going to prepare a place for his disciples. The disciples are confused. They are grieving at this news. Jesus says rather famously, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you'd known me, if you had known me, you'd have known my Father also. From now on, he says, you do know him and have seen him. Well, Philip, one of the disciples, I'm sure trying to be helpful, Philip says, well, Lord, show us the Father. It is enough for us. Okay, nice, the way, the truth, and the life, Lord. Um, well, show us the Father then. You say, if we see you, we see the Father. Show us the Father. That's all we ask. We just want to see the Father. Could you bring him out from behind the curtain now, Lord? And Jesus says, guys, you're looking at him. He said, more literally, have I been with you so long? You still do not know me, Philip. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Do you hear what he's saying? The author has put himself onto the page. The glorious Son narrates the Father like that. And you see this in the rest of John's Gospel. John's Gospel has two basic halves. We call the first half the Book of Signs, and the second half the Book of Glory or Exaltation. But both halves... Both halves show the glorious Son making known the God of glory. In, in the first half, there are signs of his glory like John chapter 2, where Jesus takes his merry band of disciples to a wedding. And at this wedding, the caterer runs out of wine. And this is, this is major social disaster in this day. We are out of wine. And if you know the story, Mary, the mother of Jesus trying to be helpful, informs him of this. Uh, Jesus, they have no wine. This is going to be major social disaster. Jesus replies rather cryptically, my hour, my hour has not yet come. Keep that in mind. Nevertheless, Jesus tells the servants, take these six stone water jars, each holding about 20 to 30 gallons of water, Take these six stone water jars, fill them up with water, draw some out, take it to the master of the feast. They do so, and the water has turned to wine. Good wine, like really good wine. So much so the master of the feast says, where did this good wine come from? What region of France were these grapes grown in? 
And then John comments. John gives us the meaning of this in John chapter 2, verse 1. Do you have that slide? John 2, verse 1? No, we don't have that slide. That's my fault. I'll read it to you nonetheless. Oh, John chapter 2, verse 11. Yes, I, I left off a one. I left off a one. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and notice, manifested his glory. And what John said? We've seen his glory. Moses didn't get to see his glory. We saw his glory. Now, John writes, at the wedding, water became wine, first of his signs, a signpost such that we saw his glory there. And the rest of John, the first half of John's gospel is like this. These signs showing his glory. He miraculously heals people. He miraculously feeds thousands of people. He raises a guy from the dead named Lazarus. He's not just the the great enlightener, not just the great teacher. This is God's glorious son with power over all creation and power to raise the dead, revealing the God of glory himself. The second half of John's gospel in that book of glory reveals God's glory as well, but in a very different way. In the second half of John's gospel, you see his glory in his cross, in his sacrifice. John chapter 12 is the the turning point. There's a feast and some Greeks, some some non-Jewish people come. And they come asking to see Jesus. And this is some kind of signal to Jesus. For he says, at that moment, the hour has come. Remember what Mary, what he said to Mary? My hour is not yet here. Now he says, when these guys come asking for Jesus, now he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And what that hour is becomes clear as he tells a parable of a grain of wheat falling to the ground and dying. Okay, the hour is the hour of his suffering leading to his death for our sins. That's where he is most glorified in John's gospel. So we marvel at the reality TV show Undercover Boss when a CEO or president takes out the trash. But Jesus goes infinitely farther to take our nature and suffer and die in our place, bearing the death penalty for our sins to bring to us eternal life. You see this one other place. There are other places, but let me highlight one other place. In John chapter 17, Just before he goes to the cross, Jesus prays like this. He prays in John 17. Father, the hour has come. There it is again. Notice, glorify your Son. That the Son may glorify you. The hour of my suffering has come. The hour of my sacrifice has come. So now glorify your Son. That your Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh. Notice, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, 
the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This, friends, is where you most clearly behold the God of glory through this glorious Son in John's Gospel. When the one who is there in the beginning, the one who is there in ultimate reality, the one that Isaiah saw, just the hem of his robe, the eternal word became flesh. The God-man who will be stripped, beaten, spat upon, hated and rejected, crucified as the most base of criminals. It is that hour, friends, when you behold glory. The glorious Son revealing the God of glory Himself. The time, the time when the tiny hands that were in the manger were pierced on a cross. The time when the Tiny feet that maybe Joseph and Mary tickled were pierced as he hung there. The hour of his glory when he would scream out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me as he was forsaken for our sins? as he received the just judgment of God in our place. There you see, there you see the God of glory on display like nowhere else. For there, friends, absolute holiness meets absolute love to take away your guilt. There, perfect purity meets perfect grace to pay for our sins. There, the eternal word is executed on our behalf, receiving the death penalty to to give you life for all who will believe. There, you see, the glorious Son revealing to you the God of glory himself. So we started with two little fish. And a bigger, older, wiser fish swimming by and asking, how's the water? Asking, I think, what is ultimate around you? And are you aware of that? Are you cognizant of that? Christmas does the same, doesn't it? It forces this question on you and me. How's the water? Are you aware of what's ultimate around you? Are you aware that ultimate reality is a person who loves you and has come because he wants you to know him. What will you do with this, friends? What will you do with this this Christmas? You don't want to be, you don't want to be like the little fish unaware. You don't want to be like the little fish Ignoring this question of all questions. Because God's own glorious Son stood in your place to receive what is due you for your sins, that you might be reconciled to this God, know His love for you, as you enjoy Him now and forever. 
So I urge you, if that's, if that's new news to you, or if you've yet to trust in this Savior born at Christmas, I, I urge you to come to him. I urge you to, to turn from going your own way. That's how the Bible thinks of it. It's really a kind of change of mind. It calls it repentance. A, a turning away from all we know that is wrong. A, a turning away from denying who he is. Denying his love for us. A turning from that and trusting. Um, relying on what Jesus Christ has done for you. Like you are relying on that chair right now to hold you up. You are relying on that chair to resist gravity. And so you rely with all of your soul on the life, death, and resurrection of God's glorious Son to bring you to God himself that you might know him and enjoy him now and forever. I urge you to behold his glory, to behold his glory by, by believing, turning to him, and trusting. But if you've already come to know him that way, I want to urge you as well to keep beholding his glory this Christmas. Make Christmas about beholding the glory of God's glorious Son who reveals to you the God of glory himself. Make Christmas about beholding his glory especially, not exclusively, but especially where, God focus, uh, where John focuses that glory in the sacrifice of his Son. I would suggest you make Christmas about that. Beholding the glory of Jesus Christ, particularly in the cross of Jesus Christ. To behold his glory, friends, where, where rebels like us are reconciled to him. To behold his glory where people who were alienated from him are adopted by him as his own child. To behold his glory where we who deserve death Receive life now and forever. I, I urge you to behold his glory, especially there, for then what will happen for you is something very helpful. Then what will happen this Christmas is glory will loom over your current trial. The glory of God's Son will loom over your current difficulty. However difficult it may be, the glory of God's glorious Son will, will be larger for you, more majestic for you than, than your current pattern of sin or temptation. His glory, as he reveals the God of glory, will be bigger for you, as it were, than your weakness, challenge, or failure that has gotten you down. Friends, let Christmas be about beholding the glory of God's glorious Son as he makes known to you the God of glory himself. Let's pray to that end. We're going to close by singing together to him. Let's pray together. The music team can come here.